Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to see you all today. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. Welcome. Uh, It's been a a great year of ministry as we kind of move towards the end of our ministry year, August 31st. If you didn't get to this letter I sent, it's because you still don't open mail. (laughs) Or we don't know who you are. You haven't actually filled out a communication card. But I, I just mentioned some of the highlights of bringing in a new campus pastor to launch the Northside campus, and that's going to be happening in three weeks, and in two weeks there'll be a group gathered right here August 5th that we'll be commissioning to go and launch that new campus on the Northside. Talked about a new campus pastor up in DeForest and the excitement of what's going on there with the building going up and the prospect of just reaching hundreds and hundreds of people that are moving right into the neighborhood there in DeForest. And then the most exciting thing that happens year in and year out and day in and day out is just change lives. And to read the survey results this year where 45 people said this past year, I gave my life to Christ. Or to hear two weeks ago, 11 of the kids at soccer camp giving their lives to Christ. Or the 12 students from the middle school and high school that went up to districts and gave their lives to Christ, or the 57 who recommitted their lives to Christ. That's what it's all about. And so thanks for being part of this Christ-centered church, which is for all people and seeing the power of the gospel continually changing lives. And so one of the things I want to do in the letter is just give us all an update of where we're at with our finances as we come to the end. We've done a great job of keeping our expenses down, but we still have a chunk to go as we anticipate covering those expenses. In the letter I mentioned 600000 In your bulletins this morning, it mentions five sixty-five. Actually, the latest number is we need 540000 to get all square and cover our ministry expenses. And so we're moving into new places and spaces to reach more people with the good news of God's love for us in Christ. And this is a time to connect our resources to God's work in this place to finish this year strong so we're positioned to begin an exciting new year of ministry come September 1. So thanks for remembering that and thanks for growing in your generosity. So as we get into the uh, message today, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been unprepared for a meeting? Oh yeah. Do you know that that's like the preacher's nightmare? I mean, literally, nightmare. You're having a dream, and you're not ready to preach. There may be a clothing issue involved. (laughs) There may be like, I didn't know I was supposed to preach, or where are my notes? I remember Larry Fullerton. He was a prankster on our staff at College Church, and one night, he stole the senior pastor's manuscript. He did. He did do that. Well, anyways, that's a recurring nightmare for a preacher, that you're not ready to preach. Uh, That actually happened to me, though, and it wasn't a dream where I was unprepared for a meeting. I thought I was going into the meeting completely prepared. It was to be the first meeting of what would be this process where I would become ordained as a minister of the gospel through our church, College Church in Wheaton. I was told on Wednesday night after youth group, I was the youth pastor, that I would come in and meet with this committee and that they would ask me two simple questions as we kind of begin this process. Tell us how you came to faith in Christ and tell us a little bit about 
how God has called you into ministry. So I remember, you know, kind of wiping the sweat off my brow. It had been a wild night, a great night with high school students. And I walk into Pastor Kent's office, and there was this august body of men, including Dr. Marvin Mayer, one of the profs of theology at Moody Bible Institute. And so I was ready for those two questions. And they asked the questions, and boom, boom, I had it. And then Dr. Mayer, who was going to kind of lead this process, said, okay, now that we've kind of gone through these cursory matters, let's start digging into these matters of theology. And at this point, I should have just done one of these tea things. Time out. Like, I wasn't that guy in seminary who hung out at the White Horse Inn at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and debated the finer subjects of theology. That just wasn't me. I just wanted to kind of do ministry. And by the way, in the last couple of years as a youth pastor, I haven't had any deep theological questions brought my way by students. And so I'm really ill-prepared for this. If you could just give me a week or so, I could kind of just go review my notes and get my head into that game, and we'll be good to go. But no, I swallow my pride and let him ask the questions. Now, Dr. Marvin Mayer, I never had his courses, and he was a precise man, and you needed precise language, and he started talking to me in some areas, and I'm going, look, I've got a Bible degree from Bethel, I've got a master's degree from Trinity, and like you're asking me things in categories, and I'm not catching up with it, and I know I don't have the right answer, and it was just going from bad to worse, and as the questions kept coming up, I just kept going down and down and down, and I left that meeting And I was embarrassed, I was frustrated, I was mad, and I was motivated that I am not going to let that happen again, especially at my ordination council where I would be grilled for two to three hours by these godly men who would drill me in any and every matter of theology. Wasn't prepared at all. So when you think about the meetings that you've had in your life, you think the most important meeting that you'll ever have in your life is the one you've already had? Or do you think it's out in the future? Jesus tells his disciples it's still to come. And has everything to do with meeting Christ when he returns. That's where our parable is set in terms of its context. Jesus has been at the temple. He's been teaching the crowds. Now he's walking away from the temple. And as they're walking away from the temple, he points to these massive stones. There's a group of us just walking around these very places right under the temple mount. And some of these stones are so big, they're as big as a a railroad, railroad car. They're huge. They're massive. And he says to his disciples, in in short order, not one of these stones is going to be left on top of each other. And so his disciples begin to talk to him about the future, when these things are going to happen, and specifically say, and when when is the Messiah? When are you coming back? So he says, well, nobody knows the hour. People aren't going to be ready, but you should be ready because there's signs One of the first things he says, one of the signs is there's going to be all these people who claim to be Messiah. Don't be deceived. He says, another sign is there's going to be a lot of persecution and suffering for the people that follow me. Hang tight, hang tough. He keeps going about these different signs. One of the signs he says is there are going to be natural disasters. One of the signs he says is, you know what? 
It's going to come like a thief in the night. He starts telling these stories. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And, you know, last time anybody broke into any one of our house or cars, you know, we didn't get an email the day before. said, I'm stopping in the neighborhood. Just want to let you know I'm going to be visiting. <laughs> Apparently that happened to our friends out east this past week because the cops called them one morning and said, is your car still in the driveway? They said, yeah, that's a funny question. Why are you asking? Because five of your neighbors had their car stolen. Trust me, the five neighbors didn't get an email. Hey, we're coming to your neighborhood. She says, look, I'm coming like a thief in the night. A thief in the night, you're not ready for that. But I'm telling you, be ready because I'm coming. Don't be caught unaware. He tells another story. He says, it's like this wicked servant who's given a job to do. Take care of my servants, the master says. And instead of taking care of the servants, he was cruel to them. He lived in selfish indulgence and and just neglected his duties, the assignment that the master gave him. So don't be like that. There's a third story that talked about these 10 virgins who were invited to this wedding feast and celebration, and there's this unexpected delay that the bridegroom isn't coming, and that kind of starts the celebration. And they've got their oil, and they've got their lamps, but some of them didn't have enough. And in this unexpected delay, they were thinking, I'll be ready for the bridegroom because some of these other people that have more will provide for me. He says, you're not ready for my return if you've not accepted full responsibility. If you're just counting on somebody else to bail you out when I return, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. And then he tells a story that we're going to look at closely today. And it's sometimes referred to as the story or the parable of the talents a measure of weight that's also a measure of money. In the NIV, it's called the bags of gold. So grab your Bible. We're in Matthew's Gospel. The first book in the New Testament before Mark's Gospel and after Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, actually Malachi. <laughs> if you're new to the Bible, grab your table of contents and you'll catch up with us in Matthew chapter 25. Verse 14. Jesus said in verse 1, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like this life with the king and being ready for his return. Again, he says in verse 14, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. The master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. 
You knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker, so when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they will, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what do we know about this story and what do we do with this story is kind of how we're going to just go after this wonderful teaching from Jesus. The first is, what do we know about this story relative to its context? When we're reading the New Testament, we're catching up with Jesus' teaching, it's always good to know who exactly is he addressing. And the context is clear, clear that he's teaching his disciples. Chapter 24, verse 1. He's left the temple. He's walking away with, when his disciples come up and call his attention to its buildings. Okay, So he's talking to Christ followers, to his followers, to disciples, about what it's like to live with the king, to be in the kingdom, and to be ready for the most important meeting of their life to meet Christ, the Messiah, to be prepared for his return. What else do we know about this story? That this story, true to kingdom teaching, is dealing with the future, his return, and the present. What it means to live with the king today and connecting the two. That how we're living today matters for tomorrow, specifically for Christ's return. It actually matters for eternity. Now, the storyline is a simple story, right? There's a master, he's leaving on this journey, and he divvies up his wealth to his three servants according to their ability. One gets five, one gets two, and the third one gets one. He's gone for a while. The first two servants immediately put the money to work. We're not told how, but they double the master's money. And immediately, the third servant takes his money, grabs his shovel, and buries it in the ground. Each of them are given a large sum of money. This bag of gold, or literally this talent, is the largest measure of money in the Greco-Roman world. Scholars tell us one talent would be the equivalent of 20 years of earnings for a day laborer, 20 years. So whether it was 100 years or 40 years or 20 years, five, two, or one talent, each of them had a lot of wealth to invest. The master returns wants to find out what they've done and for these guys to give an account. Now, when he returns to kind of see the books, to see the spreadsheets, to get an account of what's happened, the first two bring back and double the money, right? Five brings five more. Two brings two more. And they both receive the same commendation, verse 21 and verse 23. If you look at them again, they're identical. Verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You see that in 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. The same commendation. The same promotion. Verse 21, you've been faithful a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Verse 23, faithful in a few things, put you in charge of many things. 
Same promotion. And they have the same invitation, the same privilege to come and share your master's happiness, literally your master's joy. They got the same thing. They had different amounts given. They bring back different amounts, but they get the same commendation, the same promotion, the same invitation. But like so many of the parables, there's this contrast, a very sharp contrast. It's not between the master and the servants. It's between the first two servants and that third servant, the one who the master calls good and faithful, those two, and the one who's called wicked and lazy. And that's the point. That's where Jesus wants us to get our eyes on so that we'll be ready, that we'll heed the warning, that we'll long to be connected, engaged with Christ, his mission, and the joy that flows from that. And so he wants us to feel it and to see it. Now, look at that third servant, the one who just got one tap talent, that one bag of money, but it was a vast sum, 20 years, right, of a day laborer's wages. What do we notice? Right away, he buries it. That's kind of first century equivalent of hiding it in your mattress. That's what people did back then. You know, they didn't have safe deposit boxes, so they would go out in the field when no one was looking, and they know exactly where it was, or they hope they remembered exactly where it was, and they would bury it, and that's what he did. And he gives the reasons why he did that. And it had everything to do, not with himself, not with the amount of money, but with the master. Oh, I knew. I knew that you were a hard, harsh man. I know that you can take advantage of situations and people in such a way that you can actually make money in places where you haven't even invested. You, you can reap and harvest where you have never even planted seed. And, and, and so out of fear, I just said, you know what? I don't want to lose any of it. I want to make sure I return all of it. And so I buried it, and here's your money. I'm good, Right? And in the midst of his rationalization and in the midst of his excuse-making, we understand that he is throwing the master under the bus. You know, if you'd been a nicer guy, if you wouldn't be so ruthless, you know, I'd have had a little bit more trust in the situation, and I probably could have done better for you. But in light of the fact of who you are, that's the best that you could ever expect from me. And so here it is. No more, no less. The contrast is clear. And it comes out of the mouth of the master when he says and calls him a wicked, lazy servant. Wicked in your estimation of me and lazy in what I've called you to do, to go ahead and invest and grow my estate, you wicked, lazy servant, not good and faithful. Stop rationalizing your disobedience. Look, if I was that bad of a man, you should have just at least done the minimum and taken it down to the local bank and put it in a savings account and got a little bit of interest and brought it back with a little bit of gain. And the story ends with the one bag going to the one who now has ten 
and the wicked servant being ushered out into the darkness, this image of hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we're scratching our head and go, so why was his money taken away and given to the guy? He's already got 10. I mean, shouldn't we get, like, bump up the guy that's only got four right now? Jesus says, you know what? To those who have, more will be given. Have what? To those who have been engaged and committed and invested in the kingdom, what happens is you just get more to invest in the kingdom. And those who aren't doing that, even what they have is taken away. It's given this principle here. And then we come to this really hard doctrine that Jesus teaches on repeatedly. And this is this whole doctrine of hell. And all of a sudden we're going, well, wait a minute. I mean, he didn't go and squander it like the prodigal son. He at least returned what he got. I mean, really? Does he deserve that? And Jesus' teaching throughout the scriptures and the Bible's teaching throughout the scriptures isn't so much that God sends people to hell, that people actually choose hell. Hell is being separated from God. And if we want to do our life separated from God here, God says, I'll let you do that forever because you're not a robot. And you'll make free choices. You don't want to live for me today? I'm going to let you live apart from me forever. And that place is not a joyful place. A place of weeping and suffering and gnashing of teeth. So what do we do with this teaching? Well, the first thing to do is, well, what was Jesus trying to do with his disciples? He was trying to kind of jar them. He was kind of warning them. He was encouraging them. He wants them to be ready for the most important meeting that they'll ever have. It's still in the future, though they've met him today. He wants them to be ready by being engaged and invested with all that they are and all that they have in his mission until he comes. He wants them to be faithful, good and faithful servants not wicked and lazy servants. So we ask a couple of questions. The first from the text is, am I ready? Am I prepared to meet Jesus? Not do I think I'm ready, like I thought I was ready. Are we ready according to what Jesus is teaching here? We're not ready if it's not on our radar, well, I'm not even thinking about Jesus' return, meeting Jesus, whether through his return or through death. I'm, not, I'm not actually not even thinking about that. Or like the ten virgins, I'm going, well, I know a lot of good people who are ready, and they're doing a lot of good, and I'm sure there's some extra for me when that day comes, and I'm just going to lean on it. Because, you know, people have been bailing me out all my life, and I know people, and they'll, they'll be there for me. We're not ready if we haven't taken personal responsibility. We're not ready in this teaching if we're not engaged in his work, faithfully using all that he's entrusted to us to further his mission in this world. So it raises the question, what exactly are the bags of gold that God has given us, that Christ has given us? Because some of us are going, man, I've been looking down the dorm floor and around my room. I've been looking around my apartment, the condo, our home. I, I haven't seen any bags of gold. I could use a bag of gold right now. I don't have any bags of gold. 
What are the bags of gold that God has entrusted to us to invest for him and for others? So this is a beautiful thing about parables. You know, it gets your mind thinking and, and wondering, and, and so it's good to do that. So could this be one of the things he's entrusted to us? Well, he's given us, like, different relationships, close ones with family and friends, and then there's some of the relationships we have, some, some friendships, some, some work relationships, maybe some people in the neighborhood or the condo association or this group of people that you exercise with or, or, or do this craft with, right? What are the relationships? Are, are those the things that God has entrusted? The answer is yes. What about time? We, we all have the same amount of time. How are we using our time? What about the talents that God has given us? Or those spiritual abilities called spiritual gifts, these special empowerment and abilities given by the Holy Spirit where we help each other grow to be more like Christ so that together we're more fitted to do the work of Christ. This diverse group of people with all these different gifts that come together to have a profound impact for Christ in this world. And all those are true and probably many more. But let's not forget that the thing he points to here was actually a measure of money. It was monetary. It was a talent or five talents or two talents, a large sum of money. He's talking about our financial resources here. And when Jesus talks about our financial resources, he never leaves it just to our wallets. He draws a hard line between my wallet and my heart. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. And the third servant has a heart problem. He doesn't just have a work ethic problem. He doesn't have a, a bad investment strategy. He's got a heart problem that centers singularly on the master, who he dislikes and who he rebuffs. So here's a question to ask specifically about how are we using the resources financially that God has given, whether it's a lot or a little. If it's just babysitting money, a part-time job, your fixed income, or however much you're making. If someone glanced at how we use our financial resources, what would they conclude, what would they learn about our priorities, about our engagement in the mission of God in this world through Christ? Because here's the teaching, and it's a hard teaching. If we aren't connecting our financial resources to God's mission in this world, we aren't ready Well, wait a minute, because, you know, I'm serving. I'm telling people about Jesus. We're a little tight right now. We're still trying to get out of debt. I don't have a lot right now. But, man, I'm in. I'm in the game. Okay, maybe not in this area. No, this is just what Jesus is. I want to talk about this area. And, so, and Jesus is saying, look, if I don't have your wallet, 
If you don't understand that everything you have is mine, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Psalm 24, 1. If you don't understand that all that you have, every resource, including every penny you have, is from me, and, and, and you're not investing that, Jesus teaching his plane, you're not ready. I, I could be a pastor and give my life to ministry and, and do all the things that you would expect from a, a pastor. But say to God, man, you know, you know, there was a lot of times that where we just, we didn't get a lot of money, and there are times when we didn't get any, any retirement money, and so, Lord, you understand that I just need to just hang on to this right now. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. This is the hard teaching. And it comes right from Jesus Christ. So readiness is more than our beliefs. It's about our behavior, and it includes how we handle the financial resources, big or small, that God has given us. So are you ready? What have you done with the talents that God has given you? So let me just say a word about the three servants. I call it, call them the five-bagger, the two-bagger, and the one-bagger. So it was interesting. He said, according to their ability, he distributed his wealth, five, two, one, right? According to their ability. So let me say a word to five-baggers. This isn't in the text, but just as I was ruminating on it. For five-baggers, people who have a lot of ability to make a big difference for Christ and his kingdom, watch for pride. Your abilities are God-given, and the scripture is clear. Take heed lest you fall. To whom much is given, much is required. Five-baggers. Two-baggers, watch for jealousy. The tendency with a two-bagger is not to look at the one-bagger, is to look at the who? The five-bagger going, man, how come I didn't get five bags of gold? Watch for jealousy. Stop looking at the five-bagger. And remember, faithfulness is equally rewarded. The same commendation, well done. The same promotion. You've been faithful little. I'm going to give you much more. The same invitation. Enter in the joy of your master. And then there's the one-bagger. A couple things here. Guard against bitterness. One? Come on! You kidding? That's all I get is one bag? And then there's this other thing. This is so deadly. It is straight from the pit of hell, and it's a lie, and you better chase it down and root it out and stop playing that tape. Well, I can tell you why I got one bag. Because, man, was I a screw-up before I met Christ. I so messed up my life. I came to Christ so late that he didn't think I had enough time to deal with five bags, so I got one measly little bag. You're not living in the truth of the gospel. And you're still letting the lies and the accusation of the enemy define who you are today. Don't do that. Remember what God did with that little boy's lunch couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And when he gave it to Jesus, what happened? 5,000 men fed, 
not counting the women and children, and there were 12 baskets full at the end of the lunch. Be faithful, five-bagger. Be faithful, two-bagger. Be faithful. All of us be grateful. There's a second thing to look at, and that is where the, I think the story turns. The story turns because of the third servant's view of the master. So it raises the question, so what is our thinking? What, what is our view? How, how do we work out who God is? Because what we see here is it really is the marked difference that sets these servants apart in different directions. Do you love Christ? Do you love God or resent him? Is he harsh in your mind, cruel, fickle, unjust, someone that you could never please? Or is he a generous, good father who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love? Do you hate that he talks about judgment? Do you hate this notion of, of hell? Well, for those of you just chasing down the claims of Christ and what it means to be a Christ follower, if you just look at Jesus' teaching about hell, it's throughout the New Testament. He teaches a lot about hell. It's pretty clear, like it's crystal clear, Jesus believes in hell. So, for sake of argument, if hell is real, that how we live our life, and, and God lets us live our life apart from him today because we're not robots or chatty Kathy dolls that you pull the string and say, I love you, God, and I'll do whatever you want. If that's true, if hell is real, then isn't it a gracious thing that God would warn us, that Christ would warn us about the possibility of being eternally separated from God in a place that's not a party, but is a place of torment, eternal suffering. And better yet, if Jesus experienced hell for us, and that's the story of the gospel, that he came down the perfect son of God and he took on all of our sin and rebellion that caused us to be in a place where we deserve hell, and he took all of that judgment on himself, and he was separated for the Father so that we could come into relationship with him as a demonstration of his love. Isn't that a beautiful thing? What's your view of God? And where are you going to inform that view of God? The Bible is written to help us understand who God is, and there's nobody better in the Bible to do that than Jesus, and that's why Jesus is the centerpiece that holds the whole Bible story together. So are you ready? Are you blaming God for your misaligned heart and poor behavior and messed up life? What do we do if the teaching just kind of undoes us? Well, Jesus tells us what we ought to do. Turn around and get aligned with him, your heart with him, your life for him. Repent, he says. It just means turn around. Confess that. Confess that, you know what, for whatever reason, I just cordoned off this thing called money, and I said, that's mine. I took a little Sharpie, and I said, mine. 
Because by the way, Lord, it's on my pay stub. My name's on that pay stub. So, but I'm confessing that because now you've reminded me everything I have is yours. And apart from you, I can do nothing. We acknowledge that. And then we engage, investing right away, listening for his well done, expecting more responsibility, and entering into his joy. And that's the last thing I want to talk about, because that was a surprise for me. I read this, read this, read this. And the thing that struck me is so often we hear that, well done, good and faithful, well done, good and faithful, well done, good and faithful. And maybe we're familiar with, you've been faithful with little, and I'm going to give you more. But I, I think we've missed that last part, this invitation. Enter into the joy. Literally, the word there in the Greek is joy. Into the joy of your master. And what a contrast, entering into joy and being cast out in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so how's the joy thing going in our lives? Can you imagine being tapped into sharing God's perfect, infinite joy? In one of my Greek dictionaries, this was the definition for joy, a feeling of inner happiness, rejoicing, gladness, delight. And let me add to that, that doesn't change based on the circumstances. So it's, happiness is like, it's, it's circumstantial. I'm happy because I got a raise. I'm happy because she said yes. I'm happy because we're pregnant. I'm happy because we've got enough in the 401. You know, I, I, I'm happy because. Joy is, I have this Delight. I have this inter happiness, inner happiness, this joy that comes in spite of circumstances. The Bible says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus knew joy, even though he was walking through hell for us, to the cross for us, that we could have that joy. And I think a lot of us are looking for joy. I think this world is so hungry for joy and craving it and looking for it in so many different things, from experiences to people to wealth to sex to drugs, you name it. Looking for joy, looking for joy. Christ follower, never forget our source of joy is the joy giver, is God, who has always existed in this infinite, eternal joy within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit, and he invites us into it. The psalmist speaks of that, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness, not just a part, not just a taste, but there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. When's the last time you had that taste? A glimpse of joy. You know, there's this little guy in our life that came into our life last year. His name is Henry Asher Waits, our first grandchild. Here's a picture of him. That little guy, oh, my word, that's like instant joy. So when our daughter Laura calls us and it's a FaceTime call, if Lori and I are anywhere near each other, everything stops. <laughs> we go to the couch and we just get silly and make funny faces and sounds. We're just, you know, we're ridiculous. We're pathetic, but unapologetic. We just love this little guy. We just love this little guy. So much joy. Then the call ends. You go to the wedding. So much joy. And then we don't always 
See the joy of that relationship, right? So much joy, but it's little bits and pieces. But God is talking about eternal joys. Jesus said this to his disciples, John 15, 11. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Joy is found in Christ, and this teaching says it's not just found in Christ, but in our work with Christ as we invest all that he's entrusted to us to see more people become devoted followers of Christ. You looking for joy? And you're sitting around waiting for it to happen. He says, get off your duff and join me in this world because that's where you find joy. And when the 72 came back from doing ministry for Christ, they were filled with joy, Luke tells us. Filled with joy. So heed the warning, church. We may think we're ready for the meeting and we're unprepared. No excuses. It's not what we don't have. It's what we're doing with what we have been given, what we do have. Accept the invitation to share in the joy. Enter into it by investing in the kingdom. Share that joy. Share that joy that we would be known as joyous people. Can you imagine what a church full of kingdom investors overflowing with joy can do in a city like Madison, in a county like Dane, in a country like the United States with our partners around the world? being invested and engaged to see more people come to know Christ and to find joy in him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is clear. This is a meeting we won't miss. And at the end of the day, our only hope is in your son who was all in for us when he gave up everything on the cross for us. Lord, would we see you for who you are, a gracious, merciful, loving Father who sent your only Son, the best, for us. Would we accept your invitation? Would we invest in your kingdom? Would we enter in your joy? So keep our eyes on you, Jesus. Open our ears to your word today, our hearts to your work. Create in us a deeper longing for you and for joy. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen.